I have the great privilege of introducing you all to Cleta Mitchell. So throughout her career as an attorney and politician, Cleta Mitchell has made strides in law, politics, and public policy. Mitchell is known not only in DC, but across the country for her dedicated work as a political attorney at Foley and Lardner LLP, one of the nation's most renowned law firms. She has served as a legal counsel for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the National Rifle Association, and the National Republican Congressional Committee. In addition to her work in the legal field, Mitchell has served as a member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives and was the first woman in the United States to chair the House Appropriations and Budget Committee. While most people tried to avoid the IRS, Mitchell faced it head on and gained national attention when she exposed it for unlawfully targeting conservative groups. Mitchell is also one of the original conveners of the Oklahoma Women's Political Caucus. Since receiving her law degree from the University of Oklahoma, Mitchell has made it her focus to be respected rather than liked. The Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women is honored to have her with us. Please join me in welcoming Clayda Mitchell. Good morning. Well, it's really wonderful to be here with you all today. I, um, I just loved listening to all of your introductions about yourselves. And it's interesting because uh, the topic uh, is one of the ones that you said you're interested in. I particularly also loved hearing Kristen. Um, you know what I liked the most about it? It was clear. I love the, the fact that she uh, said it's a choice. Pro-abortion, no, they don't even use the word abortion, by the way, anymore, by the way. They've changed it. That's women's health. That's women's health because they know. But um, I like the clarity. I like the moral clarity. It's funny because, of, as uh, Taylor said, I practice in the area of campaign finance and election law. And a few years ago, I got a call from a group of pastors in Washington, D.C., because the D.C. City Council had changed the definition of marriage by putting a little uh, paragraph in a tax bill so that it was completely tucked away and hidden. Anyway, so these pastors wanted to uh, have a referendum, which is allowed under the D.C. Home Rule uh, Charter. And so he, I got on this conference call, and, and the leader, uh, Bishop Harry Jackson, said, I want, you to I want you to explain the difference between initiative and a referendum. So uh, all these people, and he said, you know, so I explained all that. At the end, he said, Cleta, you have the gift of clarity. Because you had made it, I had made it a channel. So I, I have the gift of clarity. So <laughs> I hope that you will appreciate that during my speech. Um, <clears throat> but I thought uh, Kristen and Students for Life certainly do have uh, the gift of clarity. But when uh, Camille and Michelle uh, asked, talked to me about this, they said, uh, do you believe in free speech? I said, well, sure. That's one of the things I deal with in my law practice and all. Michelle said, good, you're giving one in Santa Barbara in a few weeks. So, um, <clears throat> so I want to ask you all, how many of you can identify at least one instance that you're aware of on your campus where a professor made disparaging remarks about your beliefs or beliefs of a, a fellow classmate uh, because that person was, or you or that person were conservative? How many of you, show of hands, have, know of that? Okay. Now, how many of you, show of hands, can identify at least one instance where uh, the administration on your campus 
either through a policy or some announcement or pronouncement or activity, uh, disparage conservatives or uh, made conservatives feel as though somehow you were lesser beings. Anybody have ever experienced that? You've experienced it. Interesting. Um, and how many of you know of any incident on your campus, at least one incident on your campus, where the student leadership or student group or whatever uh, treated conservative uh, groups or re requests or whatever differently than they might have treated a similar request from a liberal group. Anybody aware of anything like that? Well, you know, that's pretty interesting because um, uh, here's another thing. How many of you would say that you have some knowledge of the ratio of liberal campus speakers to, to conservatives in a given uh, year? Do you, is it about equal on anybody's campus? Is it about equal? Uh, would you say that there are more liberal speakers than conservative speakers? How many of you go to, uh, are aware of uh, an academic year where perhaps there were zero conservative speakers uh, during the entire year? Do you, any of you aware of anything like that? Any? Well, you know, what's interesting, when I was preparing to come here to talk about, because when Michelle said she wanted me to talk about free speech, uh, free speech in a, an era of liberal oppression, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was to uh, get the president, the exact language of the president's executive order on free speech on campus that he issued just two weeks ago. And here's what surprised me when I Googled that, you know, the source of all. I used to have to go to the library, and now you just go to Google, unfortunately. Uh, I wish there were an alternative, but I guess there is always the library. But, um, <clears throat> but... You probably don't even know what the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature is, do you? <laughs> but, but what surprised me when I was looking at, um, I was looking for the exact executive order, and what came up on my Google search? What came up on my Google search, and you should try this, you just, not now, but <laughs> later, please, because um, I have the gift of clarity. So, um, <laughs> What came up on my Google search were all of these left-wing media, like the New York Times, the New Yorker, NPR, all of them, taking issue with the mere existence of lack of free speech on college campuses. And I was really surprised at that. I thought that they knew that they were shutting us up. But what they've done is they shut us up, and then they deny that they do it. I'm going to read you just one of the more interesting ones. This was from The New Yorker. The headline is uh, Trump's Free Speech Executive Order and the Right's Fixation on Campus Politics. So it disparages, you know, this is a very snarky article. But here I want to read you. This is uh, at the press conference announcing the executive order. There was a student who had been involved with um, Students for Life and came forward and was describing what his group had experienced on, their, on his campus. This is what this writer says. This is the kind of college administrative minutia material for a page B story in a campus newspaper that conservative and mainstream journalists have spent the past several years reframing as creeping totalitarianism. The right thrives on tales like this and has been eager to see Trump stick it to liberal campuses for some time. The right's fixation on campus politics has never had much to do with realities on the ground, of course. It reminds me of the former Soviet Union, 
where the crops would fail year after year, but the government and its government-owned newspaper, Pravda, I'm going to start calling it the New York Times Pravda, uh, would say what wonderful and glorious uh, crops had been produced that year. So if you just say it enough, you just disregard reality. And I was really taken aback by that. I thought that they were actually proud of trying to keep us quiet. But apparently, they've decided that they just are denying that they're doing it. So <clears throat> if we're going to talk about free speech, and I heard many of you say that this is a passion of yours, then I think it's really important to be armed with the history and the knowledge and the importance of where that term came from what it means and why it is so fundamental to our American story. Uh, George Will, who he and I kind of had a little bit of a difficult time because he just writes all these ugly things about Donald Trump and so I can't talk to him much anymore. But, um, but he once said that the five most beautiful words in the English language are the first five words of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. Couldn't, be, uh, couldn't agree with him more. But I... <clears throat> I want to ask you if you can name, you can just shout them out, who can name the five protected rights in the First Amendment? Speech? Religion? Press? Right to what? Assemble, right? And petition. Good. That's good. You can't imagine how many adult audiences I ask that question. They're going, jury trial. <laughs> but I want to tell you how those how those amendments came to our Constitution because it is a wonderful story that I didn't know until I was uh, working in the Supreme Court Law Library preparing for the Supreme Court arguments on term limits where I was co-counsel uh, a number of years ago and researching um, original colony laws and trying to find all the things that we could find about rotation of office. And I ran across all of this history about, um, about the forming of the Constitution. When in, in Philadelphia, there was, all, there was this debate in Philadelphia at, at the Constitutional Convention about including an enumeration of rights. And the argument went, well, where do you stop? I mean, we're writing, now let me tell you what, this is important because it is what our country was built on. This is the framework. This Constitution is built on a notion of limited government. The only rights the government has are enumerated and set out in this Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 has the laundry list of what it is the federal government is supposed to do, and if it's not on that list, they're not supposed to be doing it. We've gotten pretty far away from that, I would say. But, um, but so th that was the tension. We, one group said we want an enumeration of rights. Another group said, well, how, where, once you start, where do you stop? So toward the end of the convention, there was a move by the delegates from Virginia, George Mason, among others, to say, um, we need to have a new convention. We want to have a call for a new convention to um, identify and work out what the rights are of the people. We want to enumerate these rights. And that failed. And then there was an effort to add some uh, rights, an enumeration of rights, in the Constitution proper. That also failed. So the Constitution was sent out to the states without an enumeration of rights. And one of the things that happened during the course of the state ratifying conventions, because it had to be ratified by nine state conventions called for that purpose, to ratify or reject the Constitution. And during the course of that effort, 
that ratification process. The state ratifying conventions came up with, there was a, con a concern that there was no enumeration of rights. And so they began to identify and they sent back their ratifications and said, but we would like to see this list of rights. And there were several hundred that came back. Now the victory for those who, the Federalists, who were promoting the ratification was that none of the ratifications were contingent upon the addition of a, a, a set of rights. But there were lots of uh, letters back to the, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia saying, but we think you need to add that in. But they got the ratification of the Constitution without an enumeration of rights. But here's this now all this list of hundreds of um, rights that various states said needed to be added. And James Madison has never really gotten credit for this. I don't think people know this story, but he's my hero because of this. He's a great visionary. And he saw that if this Constitution was to have legitimacy going forward and to build on the nation they wanted to build, it had to have those rights added. What's interesting is James Madison was a Federalist. The Federalists won at the Constitutional Convention, got the Constitution after they'd finished it, didn't have a second call, didn't have anything added. They won at the state ratifying conventions. None of the ratifications were contingent upon adding anything. But he knew, he knew that what needed to happen was that those rights needed to be enumerated and added in or the Constitution would not be legitimate long term. So he takes all of these hundreds of proposals, and he drafts them, and he tells his leadership. Now remember, back then, senators were chosen by state legislatures. James Madison was not selected to be a senator from Virginia because they were mad at him because he had been one of the ones that kept them from adding the, the Bill of Rights, as it were, ultimately came to be. But he ran for and got elected to the House. He beat James Monroe for the, for the House seat. So he gets into the House, his party is in charge, and he says, guys, we need to have a, an enumeration of rights. And they said, we won that battle, James. We don't need to have that fight again. He said, yes, we do. And so he fought his leadership throughout the first Congress until he finally persuaded them they had to send it to the states. They had to have a Bill of Rights. So they sent 12 amendments out to the states, Ten were approved and became part of the Constitution on December 15th of 1791. And the First Amendment is the First Amendment because the, the one that was actually at the top of the list was never ratified. And one of the ones that uh, wasn't ratified then was ratified in 1992. It had to do with the, um, uh, the compensation of members of Congress. But the point is, this is important to our country. It goes back to the very founding of our country, our ability to have freedom of speech, and particularly on um, issues related to uh, issues and candidates and all of the kinds of things that, uh, that we engage in to try to run our country. Okay, now I have to tell you that my speech, I'm doing this... Um, my clarity is going away because I, my uh, outline is on my iPad and I can't get it to come back. So anyway, let's see what was I going to say next. Um, <clears throat> okay, I never do. I've never done this before. I'm losing clarity here. 
Okay, vanished. All right, so. I really, I, re I do apologize. I really have never done this before, ever. Okay, one minute. All right, here it is. Sorry. Technology glitch. I'm old. Um, <clears throat> so for the last 228 years, we've had the Supreme Court who has uh, interpreted various issues related to free speech. And I work, as I said, I work in the area of campaign finance and election law. And I want to read you just some things from the Supreme Court. This is why I actually had to look at it, because I want to read you some things from the Supreme Court, because I love this. I love that the Supreme Court said these things. In 1976, the Supreme Court said that the First Amendment affords the broadest protection to political expression in order to assure the unfettered interchange of ideas for the bringing about of political and social changes desired by the people. Although First Amendment protections are not confined to the exposition of ideas, there is practically universal agreement that a major purpose of that amendment was to protect the free discussion of governmental affairs. This no more than reflects our profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. And that decision, and those, what I just read to you was from the decision in Buckley versus Vallejo, citing a number of other First Amendment decisions. I was on a panel two years ago on the 40th anniversary of Buckley versus Vallejo, hosted by a left-wing organization for the purpose of revisiting Buckley 40 years later, in which the, the keynote speaker was a Democratic U.S. Senator who came and said that that decision was the worst decision in the history of the United States Supreme Court. I'm sitting there thinking, Dred Scott, you know. <laughs> but literally, the idea was so unfathomable to these leftists that the Supreme Court had said, we have to have wide, open, robust discussion of speech. And, in, and it's so amazing to me because we have completely had the tables turned. In uh, 1964, the Berkeley free speech movement, you've heard of that, right? You know what that was, where it started? There were students who wanted to have a table to hand out pamphlets about the civil rights movement. And they were not allowed to do that. And so they erupted and said, we ought to be able to hand, hand out our pamphlets. And that was the free speech movement of 55 years ago. Fast forward, Young Americas for Freedom, uh, Young Americans Foundation just sued Berkeley in the last few years and won. And it's amazing to me because this is the, these are the things that they won in this uh, settlement that, first of all, Berkeley had to pay money, $70,000, damages, no longer can Berkeley place a 3 p.m. curfew on uh, conservatives hand, you know, handing out materials. No longer can Berkeley ban advertisements for uh, lectures sponsored by Young America's Foundation, ban ads promoting their speakers. That would likely include chalking off sidewalks. Um, no longer can Berkeley relegate conservative speakers to remote areas of the campus, but they have to give them the same uh, premium spots as they give to liberal speakers. And the policy that allowed Berkeley administrators to charge $20,000 
as a security fee for conservative speakers could no longer be charged unless the students were serving alcohol or, han or handling money, the security fee has to be zero. So think about that, that list of things. Any of you have those kinds of restrictions at your campuses? I mean, the fact of the matter is, where universities used to be the beacons of lively intellectual discussion and debate, uh, it has come to be just the opposite. And we know it's not just on the campuses, it's in the media, it's in Hollywood. I met a woman once who was a, uh, she had been, a, a, she was a Hollywood writer. She had been a leftist and had gradually converted to be a conservative. And she said, you know, in Hollywood, we embrace every kind of diversity except a difference of opinion. And I always thought that was just the best description. Um, the public schools, the government-funded schools at every level, folk, you know, pushing the LGBTQ agenda down the throats of children in preschool and kindergarten and, and elementary school and all the way up. Um, we see it everywhere. And to try to fight it uh, sometimes seems overwhelming. Remember, uh, Voltaire once said, I wholly disagree with what you say and will contend to the death your right to say it. That principle is really lost in America today, and it's particularly lost on the college campuses. I don't care what the New Yorker may seem to think. Um, I can remember, you know, when ACLU was at front and center to protect speech. They're not anymore. They're mainly focused on trying to uh, make sure that none of us are able to have a nativity scene uh, on our uh, county courthouse grounds during the Christmas holidays. Oh, I said Christmas, sorry. Um, <clears throat> but I remember when the ACLU defended the uh, American Nazi party marching through Skokie, Illinois, the home of a number of Jewish uh, families, and said, you know, we hate their speech, but we have to protect their right to say it. The ACLU doesn't do that anymore. Uh, so I wanted to look at, you know, sort of what do we do? And to paraphrase Ronald Reagan in these hallowed halls, we have to say, you have to say to the speech police who have created these very barriers to conservative voices on your campus, or whether it's in the media or wherever it is, but on, for our purposes in the campuses, and you have to say to Mr. Left-wing or Ms. Left-wing college president and administrator, administrator, president, tear down these walls. That's what we have to do. That's what you have to do. And I'm going to, you know, when I looked at President Trump's executive order, it's just a paragraph. And the only way that it has any meaning is what we do with it. Because what it says is that a university or college that receives, and let me tell you what, this applies to private universities also. Because they get federal grants. They get federal money. They get federal student loan. They're, you can count on maybe two or th two, three fingers. Hillsdale and Grove City College are the only two colleges in America that I'm aware of that do not accept one dime of federal money. No student loan money, no grants, no nothing. So this applies to all of you. A number of the commentators about the President Trump's executive order said, well, that's, what, that's already in the law. So it's not a big deal. Really? It's already in the law. It is in the Higher Education Act. But guess what? We are not forcing them to comply with the law. 
And that is what we need to do. And here is how. You need to know what your rights are and, what, and then you need to document everything. Those of you who think you might want to be lawyers, this is your shot to see whether, how much you like this because this is really tedious. But this is what lawyers do. You need to know who makes the decisions on speakers. Have you gotten somebody on that committee? How many leftists are on that committee? How many conservatives are on that committee? Who's going to be going to those committee meetings and having it out with those people? As opposed to being like the little guy in Oliver, where you go to the committee, you go to the guy with your little bowl and say, more please? No. You need to be making decisions. You need to figure out how you get on the decision-making committee. Have somebody, at least one person, preferably two, on those committees. What are the written rules for outside speakers? What are the budgets and who decides? You should be part of the decision-making process, not just going and asking somebody else to make a decision to grant your wish to have a conservative speaker. You need to prepare written requests. Document everything. Document everything. Do write it down. Write down who it is you want to uh, have come. And when a, when a left speaker comes, how much did they pay that speaker? What security costs did they have to pay? What did they have to pay? And then you document all of that. And then, because it's all public record. Now, they may not want you to see it, but you need to get it, and you're entitled to it. Those student activity fees, that's a whole big boondoggle that is waiting to be blown up. Somebody wants to take that on, that's a good idea. Because that, <clears throat> they would say, well, these aren't subject to the rules, uh, of the federal rules. No, no, no. That is not true. Those are mandatory payments that students have to pay. You need to be able to have accountability as to how that money is spent, and you need to be able to see what it's going for. Is it going to pay for abortion resources at your campus? But Let's just keep it with free speech. Are, you, are they making funds available on an equal basis? Um, and go to the speakers. Go listen to the speakers who the leftist groups bring and ask them the question, do you think that we as students should be able to hear people who have a different view than yours? Now, there are many of them who would say, no, I don't think you should listen to anybody but me. There are a few, but no, you should document. There's no wrong answer. If they say, no, you shouldn't hear anybody but me, that's a reason to say, this is problematic. We shouldn't have people like that speaking to us if they don't want us to hear opposing views. Um, those, the issue of security costs, take that on. I saw just this week where a little college in a little town in Beloit, Wisconsin, the president, and I happen to know one of the people who's on the board of regents of this college, and she's given, she's a conservative, and she's get, she has given money. She, she set up a fund for this little college to be able to bring conservative speakers. And I saw just this week, and I haven't had a chance to call her and talk to her about it, that the president had announced he was canceling this conservative speaker, probably that was going to be paid for by my friend's uh, charitable contribution because of security concerns, security costs. Now, it seems to me that when uh, people are, you know, who is it that's threatening to disrupt? And why are you punishing the students who are wanting to bring this speaker instead of those who are threatening to create the security problem? So what are the rules on expulsion? What are the rules on disruption of, of campus uh, events? And who's enforcing those? Document, 
document, document. Uh, these people who want to silence you are bullies. So I'll bet there are anti-bullying rules at your campus. <laughs> these people have created an entire, the left has created an entire grievance industry. So grieve. <laughs> know what the rules are, know what your rights are. If they are bullying you, well, it's bullying to try to silence somebody who is a speaker that some of you want to hear. File bullying complaints. Name names. Make them miserable. Make them have to. Uh, and I would say the same thing about professors. If there are professors who are uh, bullying conservatives in class, file a grievance. They file grievances all the time. File a grievance against them. Document, document, document. Um, you know, you have to make noise. You have to speak up. You go to the state legislature, have free speech days at the state capitol where you get students to all go and read a list of the grievances that you have documented as to ways that your campus is not living up to its obligations under the First Amendment and the speech uh, executive order. And then make a whole list and send it to Betsy DeVos and say, we believe that this campus needs to have its federal funding cut off because they are not protecting our free speech. President Trump's executive order is going to be not worth the paper it's written on if we don't take it and run with it. That's what I'm telling you. And I listen to all of you say free speech is something you're passionate about. So get with it, ladies. Let's start, you know, let's start putting that passion into action. Uh, it is a protected fundamental right under our Constitution. It is one of the things our forebears bled and died for through multiple wars. And to paraphrase Tom, Thomas Wolfe, do not go into that free speech chill silently. Rage, rage against the dying of freedom of speech, even for conservatives. So be active, make them squirm, make them defend themselves, go on offense and make James Madison proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> so with that, I would be happy to try to answer any questions that anybody has about that. Um, oh, yes, okay. Hello. I have a question uh, related to social media. Um, as we know, Devin Nunes recently filed a $250 million lawsuit. Uh, because conservators were getting shadow banned on, you know, social media and were basically being censored left and right, including college campuses. But I think that social media has such sway in our culture now. Um, and I just was wondering if you could give your thoughts on how we might... Well, that is a really difficult question. And, in fact, it's interesting because I read um, a, a daily media law blog... So I've read quite a number of articles by media law commentators about that lawsuit. And um, the two hurdles that he has, we all say, well, you know, he's a, he's a public figure. And the Supreme Court in 1962, in the decision called New York Times versus Sullivan, which Justice Thomas recently challenged. And I, it's funny, because I've been, I'd just been thinking about that. I'm channeling. Chan Clarence Thomas is channeling me, but um, 
and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it basically protects uh, public figures from defamation claims unless the claim is made, unless the speech or the, the, the statement that is made with actual malice or with uh, malicious uh, and reckless disregard for the truth. So you have that, you know, he's a public figure. But worse is Congress passed a law a number of years ago before the advent, frankly, of Facebook, Twitter, Google, before we had social media. We were in the early days of the Internet. And there was this question, if somebody posts something, and they were thinking in terms of a comment, if somebody posts something <clears throat> on a web blog, uh, is the internet service provider, can that, per can that entity be held liable for libel or defamation? Because in, in normal libel law, if, a, if I make a defamatory statement about somebody and it's picked up by, uh, I say it and then it's rebroadcast or broadcast on TV, radio, newspaper, or, or another person, you go tell people, not only am I subject to defending that, but you are and the TV and the radio. And the, what, what they did in Congress was something that is just kind of now needs to be revisited, in which they said that um, an internet service provider is, cannot be held liable for, um, for reproducing or pu republishing something that somebody says. So that would seem to foreclose uh, being able to sue Twitter for malicious, I mean, I think he could actually, I mean, I read the tweets, and it's, I mean, I'm not very good at Twitter, as you can see, I can barely use my iPad, but um, they're awful, and they made it sound like they were his mother or him, I mean, it's just, they're awful, but I don't know how he does get by that statutory uh, protection to Facebook and Twitter, and to Twitter in this case as a defendant. But you know, I think that, and that, let me tell you, that this is a topic that conservative leaders have been talking about because they have basically, these, these social media giants, they're mega giants. They are, they are our means of communication. They are private businesses. So you know, conservatives don't want the government to get involved in private business. Um, you notice it's all the left-wingers who are calling for the rate, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, Pocahontas et al., but um, <laughs> calling for the regulation of social media. Conservatives are kind of, oof, I don't know about that. So then there's a question of, are they an unregulated monopoly? I mean, we've really been having discussions about what kind of, of oversight, what kind of regulation, and even when they try in their own feeble ways to try to hear from other voices. Google, for instance, established an oversight committee of luminaries from across the country to serve on a, a, an advisory board just to try to help them think about these issues and how do they make sure that they're hearing all voices one of the people that they had on that advisory committee is Kay James, African American woman, who is fabulous. Been, you know, she served as President Reagan's uh, White House personnel director and many other. And she now serves as president of the Heritage Foundation. She is no slouch. And some of these leftists at Google, 
raised Cain about it because she believes in traditional marriage. And so they raised all this Cain about getting, uh, getting her off there, get her off. So I read this morning, guess what they've done? They've disbanded the advisory board. So, you know, they control. If you read anything about the world in which people work there, it is only one, it is only one strain of thought. So you have, this is a huge issue because they're not, we can't sue them. They don't get government money. So, you know, the question is, and they're not covered by the president's executive order, but it's a big, big challenge. It is a, it is a welcome to the postmodern new world of how do you deal with, the, with these problems. But Facebook, Google, and Twitter, and all those, and who knows what's coming. I mean, that, that is a huge problem because there is definitely censorship. And whenever they start talking about, whenever Mark Zuckerberg says he's going to do this or that to protect us from fake news, I think, whoops, there, he's talking about us. So it's a big problem, big, big problem. I wish I had an answer. But I just, you know, anybody has any thoughts about it, you know, email me where we look at it. Let me just say, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, and you're right. So I think a lot of this is bringing more visibility. I think people are becoming more aware of it, and that's really the first step. I think most people sort of out in the real world just don't have any idea how insidious and how powerful that um, the, the social media censorship and um, manipulation of what we all see is. So I think the first, the first step is awareness, making sure people Well, I do, I do think that, you know, look, I mean, the thing that we can do, and I know, I know a group of people, and I've been, ta I've been working with MRC, that the thing that I was thinking in terms of is how do, how do, we, how do we address it? And I do think awareness is the, is the thing that we can do. Um, but, I, you know, I started hearing about people getting kicked off. Do you remember the, um, and this guy, I admit, he's a little weird, but he, but... 
it's like none of the leftists are weird, seriously. But the guy who uh, exposed the remember the the University of Virginia fake rape rape story in Rolling Stone. Um, this guy he became he was kind of he, literally he does sit in his basement and he was a one man news show, um, and he is the one who exposed all of that. Well, they kicked him off Facebook. They kicked him off Twitter. You know, they kick because they and that was several years ago. I think there is a lot more awareness now because it's become broader and broader. And of course, you know, the whole the thing I love when they talk about the Russian interference in the election, you realize what ultimately came down to was about twenty nine thousand dollars or one hundred twenty nine thousand dollars in a billion dollar campaign that the Russians bought ads on Facebook. I mean, man, I can see how that really turned the tide. Um, but the, but leftists are using that in Congress and else. You can't believe the number of bills they've introduced to make sure that that doesn't ever happen again. And the way they want to do that is, of course, to take control of the election machinery and all of the things. But and that's that is what's uh, that's what's getting Elizabeth Warren and others to say we need to regulate. It isn't because they're censoring conservative speech. Believe me. Who else has a question? Yes. Well, oh, we don't have any time for no, any more? I'm sorry. All right. Thank you all.